take your Bible and open it to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. Let me do this. First Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to read the entire section we've been in. We'll finish it today. First Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. It says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and to build one another up just as you are doing. So we've said it already. The end of the world is intriguing. It's mysterious. It's debated by people in the church, outside the church. People have all sorts of questions, all sorts of ideas regarding what's supposed to happen. It makes me think of those that pin. If you remember the Truman Show, they wore that little pin that said, how is it going to end? How is this all going to end? From what we've seen in our last few studies of 1 Thessalonians, even the church in Thessalonica, although they'd been taught by Paul about the end times, about the day of the Lord, they had questions. At the end of chapter 4, we saw that the church was concerned about those who had died. Are, are they going to miss Christ's return? Are they going to be second-class citizens in God's eternal kingdom? And Paul's answer to them was no. That, that is not going to be the case. There is no way that's going to happen. Those who die in faith will be the first to rise, and they will receive their glorified bodies. And now we come to chapter 5, and the concern that Paul addresses is no longer those who had died, it is those who are still alive. Is it possible that those of us who are alive will one day have to face the day of the Lord? Are we going to have to face God's terrible judgment? They knew that was coming. Paul had taught that to them. They knew God's wrath would be revealed on the earth. They knew that Christ, who created this planet, was going to come back to judge his people, also to rescue, to judge the world, to rescue his people. And those were the only two options. Every single one of you is going to go one day into eternal joy or into eternal judgment. So it makes sense that we want to be clear or sure about which group we're in. Those who are headed for judgment, Paul says, will be caught completely by 
surprise. We saw that last week. One, one more time, look at verse 3. It says, while people are saying there is peace and security, everything's going to go on to say, everything's fine. While they're doing that, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. It would come swiftly and suddenly and just like a pregnant woman couldn't escape the pains that were to come, the world would not escape, the world will not escape the coming judgment of Christ. So that judgment is, is certain, but it seems like the certainty and the terror of that judgment made maybe some of the Thessalonians nervous. What if they were caught up in that somehow? Is that a possibility? Should a Christian in this world fear facing the wrath of God on the day of the Lord? And Paul's simple answer is no. That's not possible. Those who belong to Christ, those who've surrendered to him, those who've trusted in his perfection, in his life, and in his death, they will not face the judgment of the day of the Lord. Look at verse 4. It starts with a contrast. But, but you, believers, Christians, Thessalonians, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So for the rest of the world, it will be terrifying, but not for the brothers and the sisters of Jesus Christ. ESV uses the word surprise there. That's emphasizing something that's sudden, something that's unexpected. We know there are good surprises in life. This is not one of those. This is a horror. This is a terror. Other translations use the word overtake, which emphasizes a powerlessness because of a greater power coming upon you. In other parts of the Bible, the Greek word there is used to mean seizing, overpowering, like, like a lion catching his prey. The lion of Judah will come. And he'll judge the nations. That's what the day of the Lord will be for the world, but not to us who belong to Christ. We know that that's the difference Jesus makes, and that's the confidence that Jesus gives us. We belong to him. Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation. That day for us won't be a horror. That day will be our salvation. Because, as Paul says, we are not in darkness. And speaking of our nature, our identity, you guys know light and darkness, common theme in the scriptures, particularly in the writings of the Apostle John. Light is, is a symbol. We know there's physical, literal light, but as a symbol, it refers to two things. First of all, light points to knowledge of the truth or, or the knowledge of, of reality. So darkness, the opposite, means ignorance. Today, if you don't know something, you might say, I, I, I was in the dark. I, I, I had no clue. That's true literally. When you're in the dark and there's no lights in the house and, and, and there's no little clocks that you can see, you don't know what's there. You're, you're concerned. You can't make out reality. And that is the spiritual case for every unbeliever. Those who reject Christ are in the dark about heavenly realities. They don't have the light. And to use the language of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, they don't have the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. God has not yet shown in their hearts the light of the truth. He's not given them the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They don't know. They may have heard it, but they don't know the truth. They don't accept it. They don't know the truth about God. They don't know the truth about Christ. They don't know the truth about sin and judgment. 
and salvation in Christ. Secondly, light also refers to the practice of righteousness. So you have light representing the knowledge of the truth and the practice or the expression of righteousness. So to be light, to be in the light, means you've learned the truth and you're living the truth. Everyone who's a parent knows there's a difference between your kids knowing what to do and then doing what they're supposed to do. But light represents both. You know it and you do it. Light is a reference to holiness. Therefore, darkness, the opposite, is a reference to sin, to wickedness. So to be in the dark is to be ignorant of truth and it is to walk in wickedness. That's how Jesus characterized the world. They're in the dark. He says, I, 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 the light has come, John 1, the light came into the world, but the darkness did not comprehend it. Or John chapter 3, he says, the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. They run from the light. They're, they're spiritual cockroaches. No offense to cockroaches. We're worse than that. We, in the darkness, apart from Christ, are worthy of judgment, death. But in Christ, we have a new nature. Ephesians 2 says we were children of wrath, destined for eternal darkness, but now we're children of God. That's what Christ came to accomplish. He came in the perfection of his life. He came through the sacrifice of his body and the power of his resurrection, and he paid the price that sin deserves. He came to cleanse us from our sin, to make reconciliation possible with the Father, and He came to give us a new nature. That's 2 Corinthians 5. We are a new creation. You guys know this justification, sanctification, glorification. We're freed from the penalty of sin through faith. We're freed from the power of sin and sanctification, and then one day we're going to be freed from the presence of sin. That's the gospel of Christ. If you're here this morning, you have to start there. You need to turn to Christ, recognize your sinfulness, call out to him for mercy. And when you do that, he will save you. And he will begin not just changing your eternity, but he will begin to transform you from the inside out. You will no longer be darkness. And no longer being in darkness means you will never face the judgment and the wrath of God. Because Christ faced it for you. That's why. That's part of what's expressed with the darkness coming on the day that he died. God's wrath came. And God's justice was satisfied with his once for all sacrifice. So as a summary of the point that Paul is making, let me, let me say this. Normally I'd give you the point up front, but I've already explained it. Let me give you the point. Since you have a new identity, you now have a new eternity. That's what Paul is telling the church. You have a new identity. You're not in darkness. You're light. Therefore, you have a new eternity or a new destiny. Your new identity gives you a new eternity. And, and that's what Paul unpacks in the verse that follows. You're no longer part of the worldly system. Therefore, you will not be there. You will not take part in the judgment that's going to come on the world. Look at verse 5. For you are all, speaking to the church, you are all children of light. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. He keeps repeating this idea, night, day, darkness, light. There are only two eternal destinies. 
and they belong exclusively to the two kinds of people in the world, those who are in the light and those who are in the dark. As a Christian, you don't belong to the night. You don't belong to the darkness. You belong to the day. You belong to the light. You know the truth and you walk in truth. None of us are perfect. We still sin, but the directory, the, 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 the directory, the, the direction, the trajectory of our life has changed. That's what it is to come to Christ. That's what it is to be a new creation. You have the mentality of light and you have the morality of light. Before I came to Christ, I, I I'd heard the truth. I could answer questions about the truth, but I didn't walk in righteousness. I was a child of darkness. I was a child of the night, but now I'm a child of light. And many of you would say the same thing. God turned the light on in our hearts. And there awaits us an eternal day. That, that Revelation says the new heavens, the new earth. It says there's no need of sun. There is no night. There's an eternal day. No more darkness. Those who belong to the light now will have an eternal light, an eternal joy forever. And those who are in the dark now, Jesus says, will be cast out into darkness forever. This is the heart of the gospel. Christ took us out from what we deserved. Here's how Colossians 1 says it. Speaking of God's mercy and grace, it says, He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You have a new identity in Christ, and therefore you have a new eternity. You're not of the night, you're not of the darkness, you're of the light. We are in a new realm, we're in a new sphere. And you need to rest in that truth. You need to preach that to yourself, the sins of your past, the sins of your future, all of those, which, all that merits eternal judgment, all that has been paid for by the blood of Christ who died and rose again. You have a new identity, so you have a new eternity. And we could contrast that with the false messages of this world that tell you, no, 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 your destiny is, is in your hand. You can change it. Do some religious rituals. Do some good works. You just need to try a little harder and you'll be fine. You can do it. And the message of Christ is, in love and in truth, you can't. Your works aren't going to change anything. It's only going to lead to more guilt, more worry, or more pride. Because you'll never know if it's enough. You'll only be comparing yourself to other people. Our destiny, our eternity, can't be changed by our works, but it has been changed for us by the work of Jesus Christ. And just like Jesus told the thief on the cross next to him, we will be with him in paradise. It's a really simple point, but very powerful, very important for the church to keep at the forefront of her mind. And then Paul moves to a second related truth. And that's this, since we have a new identity, we also have a new morality. Our new identity gives us a new eternity or a new destiny, but it also gives us a new morality. And verse 6 starts with the words, so then. So he's made it clear that Christians aren't going to face future judgment, but he moves on now to a present implication. The first truth was a comfort. The second truth is an exhortation. 
It's a command. Since we belong to the light, we need to make sure we're walking in the light. Who you are in Christ, that identity you have needs to be expressed in the way you live. So look at verses 6 and 7. He says, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, are drunk at night. He is continuing this symbolic language of night and day. He's not talking literally here. If he was speaking literally, he's saying you're not allowed to sleep, which is not a biblical thing. You need to sleep, trust in the Lord. It's a reminder of our humility. He is continuing this symbolic language of day and night. Remember, light means truth. Light means holiness. Darkness means ignorance and wickedness. We know that in the real world, typically, people who sleep, sleep, everyone sleeps, people sleep at night. People get drunk at night. To get drunk in the day is, 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 is scandalous. That's extreme. But those, even in that culture, who got drunk ordinarily did it at night. And so what he's saying is spiritually, you're not a night person. So don't sleep spiritually and don't get drunk spiritually. And what does that mean then? Well, they're, they're related ideas. Sleeping and drunkenness carry the idea of having your senses dulled. You're no longer paying attention to the truth because your mind, whether because of a dream or because of alcohol, your mind has drifted off into some other thing. You're not attuned to reality. If you give a man a duty to carry out and then he falls asleep or gets drunk, he's no longer focused on what he's supposed to be doing. He's not fulfilling his responsibility. And we've been given truth. We've been given responsibility by God. We can't fall asleep on that truth. We can't be drunk and forget that truth. We need to be engaged with what is real. There might be a distinction here. Sleep is, is, uh, tends to be a more passive thing. It sort of comes upon you. Drunkenness is more deliberate. But either way, you're being pulled away from what matters most. In my 20s, there are three times I remember falling asleep at the wheel. Once I was on the 10, headed to the 405, early morning on the way to school, and you kind of blink and you're in the other lane, which is kind of scary. Another time I was on Whittier Boulevard coming back from, uh, what mall is out there? The Quad? Right? I'm Santa Gertrudis? Is that the Quad? No, farther out. What is that? Whitwood. Whitwood Mall. I was up late the night before, worked at Knott's Berry Farm, early the morning working for the YMCA, coming home after a long day, fell asleep at a red light. So I woke up because the guy behind me honked his horn. But the most significant time was right out here on Rosemead, almost at Mines, right here where there is now a Vietnamese place, used to be a KFC. I went with my wife's cousin to school. We went together, went to the same school. And he was too tired to drive home. So he said, hey, you want to drive? And I said, yeah. So we're here coming down Rosemead, and he's asleep in the passenger seat, and I'm asleep in the driver's seat. And both of us jolted awake because the front tire hits the center island and we land in the opposite side of traffic with, on the upside of the street with oncoming traffic. And thank God nothing happened. Nothing serious other than my insurance rates going up. But you hear that and you think, who falls asleep driving? 
I mean, that's so dangerous. I would be terrified to fall asleep driving. But no one sits there and says, you know what? I'm just going to fall asleep driving. It happens. And you don't always feel it. We were up the night before, late. We were taking classes. Of, we were doing sports stuff. So we had a wrestling class, I think, and a swimming class. So your body just gives in. Some of you here are asleep spiritually. You, don't, you may not even know it but you've drifted slowly and subtly and you begin to put your attention and your energy on things that might not even be sinful. But they've taken you away from who you are in Christ and from what he's called you to do. It might be as simple as entertainment. It might be politics. It it, it could even be your own job. It could be anything. But you've been pulled into a spiritual sleep. You've dulled your senses Some of you might be drunk spiritually. You've done it to yourself. You've inundated yourself with things that pull you away from God. You've gone chasing after your own sins or your own desires, and you've worn away your sensitivity to Christ. You're spiritually drunk. You're disconnected from reality. And even if you're not in a spiritual sleep or in in spiritual drunkenness, all of us are in constant danger because we live in a world that is darkness. And it calls to us every single day. It calls us to take our eyes off Jesus, off of his glorious truth, and off of his glorious plan for us. Paul understands that danger. That's why he includes himself. He said, let us, Paul is himself included, let us not sleep like the rest of the world. Don't let that happen. We can't let that happen to us. Let's not be indifferent to the truth. That's this life. Some of you, I think a lot of you are familiar with The Phantom of the Opera. It's an old French novel written in, I think it was published in 1910. But it was, it was made famous you know, in the West because a British composer, Andrew Lloyd Webber, turned it into a musical or a real opera in 1986. And if you don't know the story, it's a, The Phantom is, is a man who's disfigured. He wears a mask. He lives in the dark. He lives in the catacombs under a theater. And he falls in love with a woman named Christine. And he wants to lure her out of the light into his darkness. And so in depicting that, Weber wrote a song called The Music of the Night. It's the man in the darkness luring her out of the light. The song says, slowly, gently, night unfurls its splendor. Grasp it, sense it, tremulous and tender. Turn your face away from the garish light of day. Turn your thoughts away from cold, unfeeling light and listen to the music of the night. The second verse says, close your eyes and surrender to your darkest dreams. Purge your thoughts of the life you knew before. Close your eyes. Let your spirit start to soar and you'll live as you've never lived before. And then the final verse, meant to win her over completely, he says, floating, falling, sweet intoxication. Touch me, trust me, savor each sensation. Let the dream begin. Let your darker side give in to the power of the music that I write, the power of the music 
of the night. That's the song we hear every day. That's the song Satan gave to Eve when he pulled her away from trusting and obeying God. This world belongs to Satan. Ephesians 6 speaks of the spiritual armor. Our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. This world is trying to groom you and me to itself. And that's why God warns us. That's why God exhorts us. Don't go down that path. Don't give in to the world. You have a new identity, and so you need, and you must express a new morality. You are, Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. We're not, we're not commanded to, to, to be light. We're not trying to become light. We are the light, but we need to act like it. Kindle the fire of love for Christ. So you got to think about the things you take in. You got to think about the things you watch, the things you listen to, the conversations you're involved in. The things we can so easily and quickly access on our phone, the things that are endless. You know, it's, it, there are engineers, people programming, created today. How can we keep people stuck on their phones? Because it wasn't that long ago where pages ended. You swiped up and you finished the page, and now they're, they're infinite because people naturally just keep swiping, thinking that one day hit, you're never going to hit the end. The algorithm is just pouring things into you. You have to ask yourself, are the things I'm bringing in, is it, is, it, is it helping me be more in tune with the beauty and the power and the mission and the urgency of Christ? Or is it pulling me away? I can't go to church today because there's a nice, there's a game today. The season finale is tonight. I don't go to church. We can't give in to the things that dull our spiritual senses. We don't want to be caught spiritually asleep. And we don't want to give in to spiritual drunkenness. So Paul says, wake up. Pay attention. The Apostle John calls us to, his language is walk in the light. If you don't do that, you forfeit the confidence and the joy that God intends you to have. You can't lose your salvation, we know that. But what you can lose is your assurance because when you stop fighting for your faith, then you begin to doubt your faith. And those people whom Paul wanted to have confidence, they would never face the wrath of God. Maybe part of the reason their confidence was shaky is because they were walking in the dark. So don't get drunk. Don't live a lazy life. It could be that you're an unconverted sinner, deceived about your own faith, or it could be that you belong to Christ, but you're forfeiting, again, the joy and the assurance and the confidence that he would like you, that he desires you to live with. We need to fight. We need to fight back against spiritual apathy and lust and discontentment and anger. People who, who curate the news and the stories, that's what they want. They know those emotions get you. I see news stories that shock me, anger me, whatever. It just pulls you in. But this is a battle. Look at verse 8. He keeps going back. He keeps highlighting the contrast. That's why the word but is in there all the time. Look at them. That's the night. Look at us. Verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. 
Three virtues. We've heard it before. Faith, hope, love. He mentioned them in chapter 1 to describe the church. He mentioned them again in chapter 4. This is a church marked by faith, hope, and love. But Paul here reminds them that those virtues aren't just characteristics that need to be expressed. Those virtues are part of the, the armor we need to wear in the battle against the darkness. And the way Paul, the, the verb Paul uses here, he says, having put on, it's not describing a continual thing. It's not like you should keep putting on the armor. The language is more like you put on the armor, leave it on, it should be on. Put the armor on, leave it on. That's how you stay spiritually sober. That's how you continue to ensure you're thinking correctly about that which matters most. The breast piece, obviously, is the central part of armor that would protect your heart. In the Bible, the heart is, is the real you. It makes your decisions. It controls your emotions. It controls your, your actions, your thought life. We protect our hearts, like, like Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart with all vigilance. We protect our hearts with faith and love. We remember what it is we believe about Christ. We remember our love for him. We remember the love he's called us to show. And if we're focused on Christ, if we're focused on his love, then our heart's not going to be so easily led astray by the deception of the darkness. The second piece of armor is the helmet. You've already put it on. Leave it on. Remember that you have it on. You have as a helmet. Notice, it doesn't say the helmet is salvation. It says the helmet is the hope of salvation. That is the reminder that you're saved. You belong to Christ. The reminder that you are on the winning side. So no matter how difficult it gets to stand up for righteousness, no matter how much persecution or personal pain it brings to fight against the darkness of this world, remember, you have victory in Christ. And that's what he goes back to in verse 9. He reminds them once again, for God has not destined us for wrath, but he has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our eternal destiny. Christ, verse 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. If your understanding of salvation is simply that Christ died and now I'm good, I'm in the clear with God, I get to go to heaven, you've shortchanged the gospel. Salvation is to forgive you so that you would become a child of God, to reunite you with God. And so he says, so that, this is the purpose of salvation, it was through Excuse me, it was through the death of Christ, but he says that it was all so that whether awake or asleep, we live with him. In Christ, we have a new identity. That means we have a new destiny, a new eternity. We sing the song, no wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by his saving grace. That's from the song we sing, now why this fear? And the opening verse of that song, it's a question. It says, now why this fear and unbelief? Has not the father put to grief his spotless son for us? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin now canceled at the cross? Every time we sing that, there's, there's a question in that verse. My, my heart goes, no! It's not amen, it's an answer to the question. No, he won't. My sins were canceled at the cross. I have a new eternity. I'm saved forever. 
And so verse 10 says, whether we're awake or whether we're asleep, we live with Christ. And, and the asleep or awake there is not referring to light and darkness in the preceding verse. It goes back to the metaphor of dead or alive. Whether, whether you're alive, you're with him. Jesus said, I'm with you always to the end of the age. When you die, you're with him. You're with him forever. Nothing can separate us, Paul said, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God, First Peter says, called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He is the light. What a wonderful message that is, not just to hear, but to remind one another with. And that's verse 11. He said this already, but he repeats it. It, it gets at it. He's not trying to do a theology lesson about the end times. He says he's trying to strengthen the church. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. That's what the church is supposed to look like. We, we stir one another up to love and good works. How? With the truth. We speak the truth in love, and the truth is that we belong to Christ. Therefore, we have a new eternity, a new destiny, and we need to walk in truth. For those who are outside the love of Christ, the end of the world is going to be confusing, mysterious, and ultimately it will be a terror. But for those of us who've trusted in Christ, the end of the world is the fulfillment of his promises. It's an entrance into our eternal reward. And what a beautiful encouragement that is that we all need because there are some seasons of life where it will be especially difficult. Where darkness will be pulling at us even more. We need to remind ourselves we belong to Christ. We have a new identity. We belong to the light. We're not destined for wrath. We're not destined for eternal darkness. So we walk in the light of his righteousness. Psalm 2 points to this final day. It speaks of the world rebelling against Christ. The kings laugh. They mock. They, 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 they reject the anointed one of God. But it says one day the Messiah, Christ, will come and he will break the nations with the rod of iron. It's a, it's a psalm of judgment. His wrath we poured out upon them. But in those solemn words, in that warning, the final words of the psalm are beautiful. And I'll close with this. Psalm 2, verse 12, ends with this short statement concerning Christ. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The world's going to end. Judgment is coming. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Father, we're grateful that you have saved us in Christ. You've called us to yourself. You've taken us out of the judgment that we deserve. But you've also pulled our, house, our, our hearts out of the filth in which we live. We were slaves of Satan, slaves of our sin. You've given us a new identity. You've placed the name of Christ upon us. You've made us children of God rather than children of wrath. I pray you would encourage us or remind us of our new eternity, our new destiny. Despite the sin and the pain and the grief we see in this world, despite the judgment that will come upon it, we will be spared because we are in your light. Help us show that as the pressures continue to grow in our lives, as the pressure grows for the next generation, we pray you would help us equip one another to walk in truth, to walk in the light, and to fight 
the temptations and the pressures that come upon us. We think about the seed in Christ's parable that was planted and those seeds that seem to grow, but because of the pleasures of this world, because of the riches of this world, or because of the, the fear of persecution, there was no fruit. Father, we want to bear fruit for the glory of Christ. We pray you make it so in our lives, and we pray you help us push others to the same. In Jesus' name, amen.